Well, good morning again to you there in the worship center, and here we are together, two rooms in one hour for the beginning of our time, really not only in this series that you just saw in the video bumper there, in the beginning, that's the sub-series for really the larger series that we're going to walk through together in the Word. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Every single week, Lord willing, if we can do this, we want to demonstrate just how much the Word of God is for every person, for everybody. And so we're going to remind you that of every week as we talk about uh, your week's reading throughout this past week, we come to a sermon in which we're able to do that, and I'll share just a little bit more about that in just a second. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. Genesis chapter 3 in both rooms. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's one in the pew rack in front of you there in the worship center. Here in this room, if you need a hard copy of the scriptures, you don't have one, you want one, just raise your hand. We not only, deacons, take a look around, we not only will give you one, uh, uh, or give, lend you one, but we'll give it to you. This is yours, or you can find it on your digital device. Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 3, right near the front. So in order to introduce our time in the Word this morning, I've asked uh, Jackson Norman to come, and he is going to read the Word of God for us. So will you please stand as Jackson, you come on up, as Jackson reads the Word of God for us out of respect and reverence for the Word. Will you stand with me? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and one with the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Thank you, Jackson. Let me, let me pray for the reading of the word this morning. Lord, thank you for how that your word is for every individual, that you want to engage your people with the truths that you have revealed. And so, Father, as we read this week together and now as we come collectively to hear together, would your word bring with it great power and great strength and encouragement and conviction? And Lord, thank you for Jackson, and I pray your blessings not only on his reading of the word, but on him today. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a great week on a couple of fronts. The one I'm mentioning, I'm thinking of in particular is just how that wherever I went, whether it was at a kid's school event or whether it was here in, on campus or phone conversations, texts that I was receiving, just to hear that, hey, we are walking with you, Pastor. My family is walking with you, Pastor, as we read these passages together. So if you're new here, maybe you've been missing the last couple of weeks, 
what we've done is taken a reading plan and we put it in front of our people and said, hey, here's where we're going to read together this week. So for instance, in your bulletin, I left mine there on the front, but in your bulletin on the back, you'll see this week's readings. And so we encourage you to read the scriptures five days out of set, five five readings for seven days this week, and then we come together at the end of the week and we celebrate what God has done in the Word, but then we preach from it as well. And so what an encouragement has been. Our journals, our, uh, the blue journals that we've been selling that uh, has the reading plan in it, allows you to write in it, I encourage you, bring your journals to your worship time. I bring my journal everywhere I go, particularly when it's a conference or someone's speaking or I know I'm going to learn something. I grab my journal with me. I've been doing it now for a while. And so it becomes a running commentary of my walk with the Lord as he's speaking to me, not only through the word in my private time, but in conference and speakers. And so that can become every single week an opportunity for you to write down notes that I provide for you, and then you can go back and look at those and God can use those. Journal. We had a 1,000 of them. They're gone, all sold out. And so we have ordered more. We hope they'll be here at the end of uh, this week, uh, maybe Sunday. Um, no guarantees, depending on how good the postal, uh, post office is to us and getting that over to us. But hey, thank you for reading along with us. Keep going. You encourage my heart when you do that, and God's going to use it. So for instance, this week, we were walking through this incredible story of creation that we come to in Genesis 3. And real quickly, here's the setup. God has created a beautiful world. It is vast. It is big. It is spacious. It can be very intimate, but it's very creative. And what we're talking about is the physical world that God had made. Think about how this world stretches the ends of the universe, but all the way down to the smallest, smallest detail that God has put into this incredible place we call planet Earth. He created it, and he said when he looked on it that it was good. He was pleased with his creation. It was perfect. But then he puts in the garden, the Garden of Eden, this beautiful place of vegetation, place where animals would come in and out. He puts a man and the woman named Adam and Eve. He creates man from the dust of the ground. He creates Eve, his wife, from Adam. These are two individuals who, like the creation, are perfect. His creatures are perfect. There's no sin. They, they to symbolize how they are sinless, um, they, they're naked. They don't, they don't wear clothes. There's, there's a transparency. There's an honesty. There, there, there's, a, there's an intimacy between them and God. And so to symbolize that, they don't need to wear clothes. And so here they are before God and before one another. Their relationship is good. Their relationship that is supposed to flourish and blossom, God says, with this relationship, husband and wife, you fill the earth. You fill the earth with, with people just like you. And in Genesis chapter 1, our memory verse, one of our memory verses for this week. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The image of God is put on every individual. There is, as Psalm 8 says, there's glory and honor crowned upon God's cre creatures that he created after our likeness, what a beautiful thing man and woman this creation is, and God honors it. And, and, and so their image bears, the image of God. So every person that you meet, every person that you meet bears the image of the almighty creator. Powerful. 
And God says, I want my glory to spread through the ends of the earth. I want my glory to be throughout all the earth. So therefore, Adam and Eve, here's job number one, fill the earth, multiply, have families. And those families will have families and those generations will have generations so that my image is stamped on man, is, is spread to the ends of the earth for, for, for my name. And then he says this, here, here's the second thing he gives them to do. He says, look, here is the earth. You keep it. You, you work it, you name the animals, you care for it. You have been given the earth to steward for my glory. And everything was good and everything was perfect. And at the end of the sixth day, when God was finished with all his creation, he put man in the garden and he stepped back and he took a breath and he said, okay, what do I have? He said this. He just didn't say it was good. He said it was very good good. He was pleased. Then we come to chapter three. And now comes this character, the serpent says, who is more crafty than any other creature. Now, we don't have time to dive into the theology of the serpent, and he's walking because later he's going to be cursed. But here is what later on the scriptures imply, that the evil one, Satan, took up residence within this serpent, used the serpent to speak to Eve. And so here is the enemy of God walking into the Garden of Eden, into God's creation. Now, in our readings this week, we went through Job chapter 1 and 2. That was the last thing we read. And in Job chapter 1 and 2, we see where Satan, this character here, created angel, is in the presence of God, and God asks him, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout all the earth. So here is one of God's created beings, a created angel who is incredibly powerful, given great access, given access to everything in the earth, and he comes into the garden, and here at the beginning of this incredible story, the beginning of creation, now what's God going to do? At the beginning of this story, we see this enemy come, and here's the enemy's goal, to blacken or mark or, or cover up the glory of God. He knows he can't defeat God. He can't do that. But here's what he's going to try and do. He is going to try and darken the glory of God. And here's how he's going to do it. He is going to come to God's prized possession, his creature. And he is going to turn his creatures against the creator. And that way he's going to see not only the glory of God darkened, but then he is going to attempt to thwart whatever God wants to do in the lives of his creatures. So he comes into the garden. And he comes to Eve, comes to the woman who's there, and he says, he asks a simple question. Look at it there in verse 1. He says to the woman, did God actually say, and so here's what I want to do today. I want to give you just three simple categories. If you're taking notes, three simple categories. And under each category, I'm going to give you a couple of statements. And that way we're going to build not only what happens in this story, but what happens in our lives. This is not only a story from the Garden of Eden where we see the very first sin, the very first act of rebellion, disobedience against God, and it has huge 
consequences. But here's what is easy to do, to come and just kind of sit back, just kind of take it in, just kind of listen and say, that's then, and, and, and yeah, that's informational, but not realize that we are part of this story. We are the ones who have sinned. And so therefore, this is our story. We are in the Garden of Eden now, and not only us, but all of history. So what happens in the Garden has happened not just to Adam and Eve, but has happened to us. And so we begin to unpack what it means for us to see what is broken, restored, and renewed by God's grace. So under this first category, simply called the fall. Here's the fall if you're taking notes, all right? Thought number one, when we doubt what God has said, we begin to mistrust who he is. So in those first seven verses that Jackson read for us, here is what is overriding this passage or really is sitting at the front of this passage when the evil one comes in and everything is perfect and everything is good. He comes in not with, with power and with force, not doing magic tricks there in the Garden of Eden, not trying to wow Adam and Eve, not trying to, to get them to come over to his side because he's more powerful than God is. No, he doesn't do any of that. Here's what he does. He asks a subtle question. Did God actually say? In other words, he's beginning to plant the seed of doubt in the woman's mind, in Adam's mind. He's planting the seed of doubt that God is not really who he says he is. And this is where sin began in the garden, and this is where sin begins in you and me, is when we begin to doubt what God says. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the evil one, his greatest tool, oh, he's powerful, but I'm convinced that his greatest tool is not a show of force, but his greatest tool is subtle deception. It's quiet. It's subtle. It's something that I might say to myself. It's something I might say to my heart. It's something that others might say to me. But it leads me to turn away from what God actually says. Do you see why it's so important to be in the Word? Do you see why we need to take in the word of God regularly? It's not only just information where we say this is what God says, but what we're doing is building a relationship with the author so that we stop doubting what we say to ourselves, what others say to us, what the evil one might say to us. And when we doubt what God says, when we doubt his truth, when we doubt what the scriptures say, when we doubt what we know is true, then we begin to walk down a road as Eve did with the serpent to mistrust who he is. Because here's what Satan wanted to do. He wants wanted Eve, and he wants you and me, not only to doubt, but when we mistrust the character of God, we then begin to mistrust things like his holiness. We then begin to mistrust things like the judgment that is going to come upon sin. You will, did, did God really say this? And he leads into, well, you're not really going to die. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, I want you to doubt what God says so that you can doubt who he is. You can doubt his character. You can doubt his plan. You can doubt his wisdom for you. And this is what happens when we fall into sin. We subtly begin to think that God really isn't who he says he is in his word. But here's the second thing. He leads Eve to forget something. He leads Eve to forget in verses 1 through 7. 
the provision of God. He leads Eve to focus instead on the passions and the desires of her heart. What is good for the what is pleasant to the eyes, what is good for food, what tastes good, what looks good. You're going to be like God's to achieve a different type of status. You're going to enter into a, a, a you're going to have a of a new mindset. You're going to have a new new reputation. You're going to have a new new platform in which to live, in which to operate. There's something always shiny. There's something always new. There's something always better ahead. And when we forget, here's the second thing: when we forget the provision of God, we begin to pursue the passion of our hearts. So sin begins when we doubt what God says and mistrust him, but then we go all the way when we forget all that God has provided, and instead we pursue the provisions of our own, of our own hearts, or the passions of our own hearts. This is what sin is. Sin is simply this, that we pursue or we desire, we prefer what we want or what we think will satisfy us not what God has given to satisfy us. It, over in chapter, in, in chapter 2, God lays everything out for Adam and Eve. And he says this, hey, look, you have every tree in the garden of Eden. You can eat from every, whatever it is you have. Here's my gracious provision for you. I'm simply going to ask you this particular tree, this as an act of worship, as an act of submission, don't eat of this tree. This is all I'm going to ask you to do. It's very simple. Every tree Eve could have had. Every tree Adam could have had. Every, every, everything that the Father had provided for them, the Creator had provided them, was gracious and it was good and it was overflowing. They had access to God. They had everything. But the doubt and the mistrust of who God is turned into, well, then, therefore, he must not fully want me to be satisfied. His provision isn't good enough. It's almost as if we get these blinders on when it comes to sin, whatever sin it is, whatever, it could be some, some sort of, of addiction, it could be some sort of habit, it could be some sort of relationship problem that we're walking through. Whatever it is, it's, sin captures us, and it's almost as if we have blinders on. And all we can see is the passion of our own heart, and we forget all that God has graciously given to us. It's like this past Friday, I was having dinner with, my wife and I and, and son were having dinner with another family, just met him. Great family. And they had a sixth grade, uh, sixth grade boy, and they had a little three-and-a-half-year-old boy. And the three-and-a-half-year-old boy comes running out of his room, and he had a Lego police car, and he shows it to me. So we get on the ground, we're, we're playing with this Lego police car. And so naturally, the dads and, and the moms start turning to, hey, hey, did your kid like, did your son like Legos? And he said, yeah, he my, my son, my sixth grader gave it down when he was done with it, and so he loves it. So do you have, like, out in your garage, 800 billion pieces of Legos that aren't put together in these, in these cases? He said, yeah, we got all those as well. And so we're going through all of that, and it reminded me of, of how often in our lives we have to move on to the next thing. And so, for instance, like our son, we're having this conversation with him in their home. Our son loved Thomas the Tank Engine. Anyone remember that? Thomas the Tank Engine was this great train, and he had all his friends, Spencer and Henry, and they were these great trains, and they lived in this train community, right? It's from England, right? So, so they lived in this great train, and our kids loved it, and Harrison loved it. So we got the DVDs, we got the videos, we got the books, we got the, we got the table, and we set it all up one Christmas, and he kind of 
move from that. That was, you know, that, that was fine, but it was time to move. <laughs> and so he goes to real trains. He loved real trains. There's this one big book I still remember, and it was filled with these trains, uh, stories of these different trains. We just, we would all the time just flip through the pages of this real train book. And so he, we, we got him another train set, a better one, a shinier one, a bigger train set, and he would play with that. Well, then it wasn't long after that that my son, naturally, he just kind of wants to move up. He, he wants Legos. And, and with, in Lego world, you start out with some things that are incredibly simple, but then you move to incredibly complex things in Legos. And so all the while while we're in the Lego stage, it's the next one. It's the more complex one. It's the bigger one. It's the better one. It's the Star Wars one. It's this. And then you just keep going and going and going. Well, now it's, it's, it's screens. Now it's, it's, it's screens on TV. It's Xbox. It's the phone. It's the iPad. It's the next game on the phone. It's the next game on the iPad. And finally, Sheree and I will look at us as our kids come to us and they'll say, hey, we want the next best thing. And, and we'll just go, hey, don't your mom and dad, don't we provide for you everything that you need? What else do you need? And it's always the next thing. And we forget how gracious God has been to us. And this is what happens when we sin. This is what happens in a marriage when Wife says that that my husband no longer is providing for me the way that he needs to provide for me, whatever area it is. And, and I feel inadequate. I, I feel inadequate in my life. This it, is it, when a husband cheats on a wife. What, what's he? Pers- he forgets the provision God has given him, and he pursues what the passions of his own heart. We all do it in different ways and in different stages as pastors, as ministers. Man, we, we can look at others around us and churches around us, and we can look at ministries around us, and we can look at buddies that are doing really, really good, and here's the danger to say, forget that God has been so gracious and provide for me here, and I'm content, but then we can sin and act out in jealousy and say, oh, why don't I have this? And so this is what captured Adam and Eve. And she eats of the fruit. And you think, well, that's no big deal. It's just a, you know, a story back then. That's all she did. She just ate an apple or whatever the fruit was at that time. But here is what she did. It was more than the story of fruit. It was more than the story of the garden. It was a story of the heart that said to God, no longer will I worship you. No longer will I be in submission to you. No longer will your word and your glory and your provision be enough. There's more. And whatever I need to do, I'm going to get it. And I'm going to do it. That's what sin is. And it ruined the world. Oh, man, it, from, that, from that moment forward, the world has never been the same. Because now sin enters not only the lives and the hearts of these individuals, but it enters into the whole world. So secondly, there are consequences. Here are the consequences of the fall. Read with me. Find your place. Genesis chapter 3. Read with me beginning there in verse 8. Look at what happens here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Listen to this. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There's shame there. There's fear. 
God said, who told you that you were, were naked? And then he just asked him point blank. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? <laughs> the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. That's not true, Adam. Or at least you're trying to play the blame game. Adam, it says, the scriptures say up in, verse, in the verses that we read, verses 1 through 7, that Eve gave to you, and it says that Eve gave to Adam who was with her. He was there. He was there in some form or fashion. He was there. That's why God comes to him first. He's, he's responsible for the home. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? The man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to Eve, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord turns. Keep reading. Verse 14, the Lord's going to cast judgment upon the serpent, on the evil one, on the woman, and on the man. Keep reading with me. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. Amen, because I hate snakes, to quote Indiana Jones. There's hostility between the evil one and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So, your followers, those who will follow you and your way and your worldview and, and, and the way you operate, and the one who will follow someone else, her offspring. Here, this offspring, you, he shall bruise your head. The one that's going to come from me, Satan, he is going to bruise your head while you bruise his heel. We'll get to that in just a second. To the woman, he said, to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. As the Garden Commission comes to Adam and Eve, the Garden Commission was, number one, be fruitful and fill the earth with image bearers of God. Now as that woman and the man have children, she's going to pay a price. There's going to be judgment there on this part of the commission, great pain during childbirth. Then this, in the relationship, your desire will be to lord over, rule over your husband, and he will rule over you. So here's what's going to happen now, Eve. I'm just going to let you know that now that sin has entered into it, not only will be pain in childbirth, but in the home, there's going to be this constant battle to lord over one another for each one to get their way, for the woman to usurp the authority that's been given to Adam, for the man to abuse the authority that he's been given in the home and the children, they are going to fight. There's going to be great conflict. As chapter 4, in just a few verses, tells us, Cain and Abel, the brothers, of Ad, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, things don't turn out really well when one gets jealous and angry and murders the other one. Hostility and conflict in these relationships. To Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Now, cursed is the ground. Cursed is this earth because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now the world, Adam, you're part of the commission, which is to go out and to, and to take care of the ground and to, and, and to take care of, of this world. Now this world that was in harmony and peace with you as you worked it, work is a good thing. Now this world will be in disharmony. It'll be in disarray. This world's going to be completely broken. And now you're going to work and it's not going to, it's not going to be profitable to you like you want it to be. And now this world is going to suffer the consequences of sin. So here, let me give you these three lines under the consequences here. Number one, here's what we've just read. Sin severs the relationship between us and the creator. Sin severs the relationship between us and the creator. This is all under consequences. Now, instead of this intimate, open, transparent, honest, fellowshipping relationship with the one who created us. Now, Adam and Eve, the minute they hear the sound of God in the garden, they run. Whereas before they would come to him and would speak with him and they would worship him. Now, in shame, they run and they hide. Instead of being intimate with God, now there's distance. Instead of being connected to God, now there's a broken relationship. God's garden had changed all of that. The sin in the garden had changed. Not only that, but there's this matter of control. Now, instead of uh, being submissive to God, now instead of saying as image bearers, we worship God, we're submissive to God, now there's this sense of control. Now I'm an image controller. So from this point on, as you see, they sewed fig leaves together because they were ashamed. They're trying to control their image. Now they're the ones. Now instead of allowing God to shape them and to grow them and to walk with them, now they're the ones because of sin. They have to scramble because now they're embarrassed and now they're the image controller. And we, as descendants of Adam and Eve, to this very day, we live to do this, to make sure it is not the image and likeness of Jesus that is reflected in us because of our sin. Here is what we do. We control it and keep it and manage it and hide from God in the process. So it's our story today. Here's the third thing, death to life, or rather from life to death. Now that eternal life was given to the man. The, the, the relationship between God and man was, was this, that you now will live forever, but now death comes into the life of every human being. So every little baby born comes out with this stamped on its head, sinner deserving death. Because it says in Romans chapter 5, it says this, very simply, Paul, he's walking through the gospel. And he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, now death has spread to all men because of Adam, but because also all have sin. Yesterday, I went to the hospital. And Sheree and I went up to see someone who had a baby. I like those hospital visits. And we walk into the room, and there's this beautiful little girl dressed in pink, all bundled up in her little onesie. She's cute as can be, eyes closed, yawning, 
beautiful, innocent. And my prayer for, for Molly was that she would be a follower of Jesus and advance the kingdom of God in a powerful way. But there's something inside that sweet peak little onesie. It's called sin. And because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, now Molly, now my two kids, and now every child born to us, every person is infected with this sin and infected with death. And we're separated from God forever. This is what Adam has done. Second line under the consequences, it tears apart cultures and families. Sin tears apart cultures and families. Adam and Eve, you're, you now are going to have this struggle, this conflict. They are, we already see where they blame one another. This is what we do when we sin. <laughs> We're embarrassed. And the very first words out of our mouth are words that attempt to justify ourselves. Happens all the time. Something happens. We fly off the handle. We get angry. Well, if so-and-so would have done Whatever, I wouldn't have done that. It just is natural. It comes out of us. We blame others. We alienate ourselves from others. I don't know about you, but if there's sin in my life, there's conflict in my life, here is my tendency to run, to alienate myself, to distance myself from others, not run to them, not to find grace with them, not to love them, not to be forgiven or forgive them, but with others, whether it's a family member, whether it's what, here's what I want to do. I want to alienate myself. I don't want any part of you. Or you've hurt me, and so, and so sin tears away the fabric of our families, tears away the fabric of our church. We blame others. We, we run from others. We don't serve others, but instead we hurt others. We manipulate others. We find ways to control others. We do this not, in, not only in families, but in our churches, in our, our cultures, this is the effects of sin. It's just inherent in us. And then thirdly, here's the third effect. It shatters the pattern design of God's creation, not only relationships, not only between God and man, but it shatters the design of God's creation. I was reading yesterday, just going through the news, and here was the headline. Here was the headline from California. Mudslides, fires, and the flu. It's destroying parts of California. It's the story. Have you seen it? Where these mudslides are coming in and taking homes away and cars away. I mean, there's this picture of these two cars just mutilated, dumped out by the Pacific Ocean. There's this picture of this woman. She was holding her dog, which is in a major road, and just mud coming down. And the mud is able to come down because of the great rains that it fa have fallen in California. And the great rains bring mud that slides through because why? All the forest fires have destroyed a lot of the vegetation. It's like one thing after another is broken. And then the flu. They said the flu is broken out in parts of California. And they're seeing deaths of, deaths of people under 65 like they haven't seen before. And I'm just sitting there reading this thinking, the world, God's creation, the beauty, the life is broken forever. It's not going to be the same until the end of time. Cancer, sickness, disease, all of these things come flooding into the world. 
along with the sins of the human heart. So that by the time we get to chapter 6, one of the most heartbreaking things I read this week, in Genesis chapter 6, when it says that every person began to do what was right and pursue their own sin, I'm paraphrasing here, it said that God, you ready for this? The God who saw his creation and said, this is good. Oh, this is very good. Satisfied. Over by chapter 6, it says that God mourns. He grieves. He's crying. My creation. The sin. Oh, the sin of these people. How could they do this to one another and to this creation? In comes the holiness of God with the judgment. It's amazing. This is the story of our lives. So what do we do? Lastly, it's not what we do. It's what God does. It's what God does. Here's God's response. Here it is. Here's your sentence if you're taking notes. All right, here's the third thing. God's response, number one. God reserves judgment for a descendant of Eve that would rescue her children. So God has a plan. God has a plan. And and this is what I love about the character and the heart of God. And if you don't get anything I've said today, get this one thing. When God saw you and me through the eyes of Adam and Eve, when he saw the brokenness and when he saw the dysfunction and when he saw the hurt and when he saw the, the pain, when he sees that, the shame, the hiding, he doesn't passively say, well, let's see if they'll work their way out of this. He comes with a promise, and he comes running in with a plan, and here is the promise, and here is the plan. And it's found there in that interesting verse when he's looking at the evil one, and he's saying, you're going to crawl in your belly, snake, from this point on. Your descendants aren't going to get along with the descendants of Eve, but then there in verse 15, he says there is coming one of the descendants of Eve, an evil one, you and your followers are going to bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him. This one is going to come along, and he's going to stand up for what is good, and he's going to reflect my glory. He's going to be in my likeness, but not like Adam. He's going to be different, and he is going to come, and you're going to hurt him. You're going to batter him and bruise him, and you're going to, it's going to look like you're going to win. You're going to bruise his heel really badly. It looks like he's going down. But then he says what? He says, but he is going to bruise. Some translations say, but he will crush your head through his bruising and through his suffering. He is going to take on sin and all of the condemnation and guilt of our sin in Adam and because of our own actions. This one, this descendant of Eve named Jesus is going to come and take it all upon himself and he's going to be bruised. He's going to be battered, but he is going to crush one day evil and sin and make all things new in the human heart for all those who turn to him. That's the promise. He reserves judgment for a descendant of Eve to rescue me and you. It's amazing. Amazing that God would come up with this plan. Amazing that God would love us so much when he could have left us. But then finally... God provides grace. 
Secondly, God provides grace that continues the plan of redemption and makes all things new. God doesn't say, you know what, there's going to come a descendant one day and maybe it'll work out, we'll figure it out. No, he keeps moving history along to the point where one day all that was wrecked will be made And this is the story we get to read about from this point on. We're going to read about how this story unfolds. We're going to read about how God uses families and generations and how God uses nations and God uses circumstances and God uses all these things to bring about the descendant of Eve who would rescue us. And then after he's gone, how does the name of this descendant of Eve and the work of this descendant of Eve continue on to the end of time when God is continually moving to redeem all things, not only his creation, but those who call upon him. God provides grace to continue the plan of redemption and make all things new. So here, look at it. I want to read some scriptures to you as we close out our time. Look at the end of the chapter here. So the man called his wife's name Eve. Verse 20. Because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Here's God's grace. God says, listen, um, I care about you, and I'm going to restore fellowship with you. So here's, here's some skins to cover your nakedness and to restore fellowship so you and I can walk together. It's pointing, though, towards the cross, pointing towards Jesus. But then he says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work and work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away everyone to guard the way to the tree of life. Now you say, Pastor, why in the world are you reading that? That sounds kind of somber. Well, it is. It is. Adam and Eve then go out of the garden and the world takes off History begins. But now there's this guard over the tree of life, this tree that if they had access to it, they would, they would find the life that they longed for and the life that they hoped for. And God said, no, 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 no. You're not going to touch it. You're not going to be in the garden anymore. You're gone. You, you, you're going to continue. I'm going to give you grace to continue, but you're gone. But then here's what I want to share with you. This is where God is working. You ready? Revelation chapter 22. This is what is happening. God is working all things towards an ending for his glory. Now, I want you to know that there's great hope. There's great hope. There's great hope for those of you who do not know Jesus personally, and some of you do not. There is great hope for you because in your sin and in your need, God has come running with a rescuer named Jesus who has died for your sin. If you will simply fling yourself on him, if you'll simply just open up your heart, don't hide from him. But run to, if you will run to him, you will find the forgiveness and joy and mercy that you long for. For the rest of us, we have to trust that God's plan continues. We have to rest in this. Here's the word that I'm remembering this week. Rest in the plan of God that's unfolding. Rest that there's coming a day that despite the brokenness and the detours, despite the long way around, God is working out his good and his glory. And one day it will 
be good. I want you to take hope in that families today. I want you to take hope in that singles, regardless of the brokenness, regardless of the hopelessness, regardless of what is happening. Run to the grace of God and rest in the provision of Christ and his grace from this point forward because God is working out something amazing. This is where he's heading. So I want to read to you Revelation chapter 22 because this is so, so good about what happens. This is the last chapter. Genesis 3 is really the first chapter in the history of the world. This is the last chapter, Revelation, literally last chapter of the book. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Will you stand with me now as we close our time together? And we're going to enter into a time of commitment in just a second as soon as I read this. But I want you to hear this because when I read this, I about came out of my seat on Friday. When I read that and recognizing how much I want all of you to walk with me through the word and to understand the gospel and understand the grace of Jesus and that there's hope and you can be renewed and you can be forgiven and you can find this incredible rest in the grace of God moving forward this week, you can find it. We know that because what was broken will one day be fixed. It will come to pass. You can have confidence in that. And listen to what it says. And as soon as I read this, we're going to say amen, and we'll pray together. Revelation chapter 22. This is it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, the one whose heel was bruised so that he could crush the evil one, Jesus through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was this tree of life. So in the garden, it was there and no one could get to it. But now here it is in the new garden, in the new heaven, in the new earth, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. After all that's gone on this week, when I read that phrase, I said, praise God, the healing of the nations will come from the one who has made possible for the tree of life to bear fruit. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Just like in the garden when Adam and Eve were worshiping and loving God, his presence was there. It was pure. It was There was nothing cursed. There it will be one day. Then they will see his face. Instead of running and hiding under the trees and the bushes, they will see his face. And there will be no fear because his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There's no more darkness. There's no more fear. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Lord, oh, may it be soon. May it be soon. The new garden. The tree of healing. No more sin. No more conflict. No more hurt. No more cancer, no more death, no more funerals, no more divorces, no more prodigals. 
only your presence. So we long for that day. And Father, we don't look at it as if since it's so far away, there's hopelessness. We look at it as confidence that this will happen. And we rest in the gospel in the garden. We rest in it. We draw strength from it. Patience from it. And hope from it. Oh, Father, deal with our sin today. We confess it. Deal with our lives today as only you can. May the one who doesn't know Jesus may be walking forward in just a second or maybe walking and making an appointment with one of our ministers or talking with a believer. May they run to Christ. But may we rest in Christ in this glorious gospel. Pray in his name, in Jesus' name.